Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I catch up with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, and we talk about the FDA 2020 inspection data and kind of digest and evaluate the top three areas of 43 observations. I'm going to spoil it for you. It's Kappa, it's complaints, it's design control. We talk a little bit more about some of the whys and maybe what you can do about it. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is familiar face and voice. And remember, the Global Medical Device Podcast powered by Greenlight Guru is now available on video. So I hope you're checking that out. But joining me is Mike Drews, president of Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and especially to see you today. And I can't help but point out that it's, uh, I think my forte is the content. So you know, none yeah. of my customers pay me for what I look like. So, <laughs> <laughs> If somebody's paying green light for what I look like, then thank you. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. Fair um, enough. So one of the things that we've talked about from time to time over the years is, you know, just some trends and uh, what's happening from the FDA perspective. And you sent over an article the other day. It was a pretty good one on uh, Med Device Online. And, you know, we'll provide a link to that, but I think the author did a really good job of this article. But the article covers the top 10 most cited issues in FDA fiscal year 2020 from medical device inspection. So I thought we could unpack that a little bit and explore that a little bit. The first thing was interesting to me. I mean, this is not a big surprise, but the volume of inspections is down a great deal. Now that's not a huge surprise, but any thoughts about that before we start to talk about some of the issues that were cited? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start, John. The volume of inspections for 2020 was down by about that. And it's not, you know, any surprises why. It's primarily because of COVID. But basically, not just the volume of inspections down, but the number of findings, specifically 43 observations and warning letters. And my question is why? Because Mm -hmm. COVID aside, you know, more inspections are being done remotely. So when the number of findings is down, is it because we in companies and we as an industry are doing a better job? Or is it because of something else? You know, it kind of begs the question, John, how effective are these remote inspections when you do, for example, a desktop audit? Is that just as effective as if somebody was in your facility auditing, you know, the old fashioned way, as people would say? You know, this is a classic problem in epidemiology and medicine. If the number of diagnoses of a disease is increased, is it that more people are getting the disease or is it that we're just better at diagnosing the disease? So can we conclude, John, because the number of observations is down, that we are in industry doing a better job? I think that's uh, an inaccurate conclusion. I think it's, who knows uh, at this point in time, because I think my opinion is 2020 was such a weird year for audits and inspections. And of course, the volume was down. And I know you know, FDA did resort to some remote activities, but someone was telling me recently, and I tried to look this up, and I, I have to believe this person there, there seems to be an authority, but apparently FDA doesn't have a mandate or I'll use the word permission or, or something of that nature to do remote inspections for med device companies. And that was intriguing to me. So I wonder if that's part of why we saw that reduced number of inspections, you know, in addition to the COVID is that they didn't have a mechanism or a means to do remote inspections. Well, I can't comment 
comment as to the legalities of that. I'm not an expert in that particular area, but according to the statistics shared in this article, which I assume are valid, the number of 483s that were issued against medical device quality systems was half. So that's yeah. a pretty significant decrease. Huge. And I think it would be naive for someone to say, oh, half from what it was the previous year. Yeah, there's reduction in the number of inspections, but percentage, we're doing much better year over year. Ah, I think that's a little premature. This is the proverbial, John, is the glass half empty or half full? <laughs> you know, both are factually correct statements. You yeah, can't argue right. with either one. You know, so right. is it that this number is decreased by 50%? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? All right. I think maybe it makes sense, John, to move on to the... Yeah. Yeah. of those observational letters and those uh, and those warnings. So according to the reference, the top three cited claims are probably no surprise to you, John, no. CAPAs, complaints, and design controls. Those three things, those three areas, CAPAs, complaints, and design controls led to approximately 35% of all 483 observations that FDA mm -hmm. issued last year. Well, I don't remember the exact percentage from previous years. I do remember, though, that this is no surprise that for many years, CAPAs, complaints, and, and design controls, sometimes they jockey for number one, two, or three position, if you will. But for years, these have been routinely the top three things that result in 483 observations. So this is not a huge surprise. CAPA has been the winner. I don't know if that's the right word here, but the winner as far as 483 observations for, I think, something like eight out of the last 10 years or something crazy like that. So yeah, th those aren't a surprise, really. Well, just to peel back that onion a little bit further, John, and it's kind of ironic, you know, that we're talking about CAPA, Corrective Action, Preventative Act, because um, we're trying to get into the preventative here of trying to, you know, keep these yeah, things from, right. from happening. But it says of the 197 times that CAPAs were issued last year, manufacturers either didn't document their procedures, didn't cite them, or they didn't, sorry, they didn't document them. That was the majority of the times, about 105 times, or in about 30 cases, they didn't even cite them. That's crazy. I mean, to me, what's the point of having any, you know, a CAPA system or a quality management system in general? You're not going to document if you're not going to cite. I mean, this. That's crazy. I mean, almost 243s for CAPA, 165. So if my math is correct, let's call that roughly about 83 or so percent of the CAPA citations. It's because they didn't have procedures documented. It's like, oh, it's 2021. That's a little mind-blowing to me that companies still don't have procedures to describe how they do corrective actions and preventive actions. That's a little concerning. One of the things that I've talked to many of my customers about, John, and I know you and I have talked about in some of our discussions before, just because a company has a quality management system, and of course, all medical device companies have, and just because it ticks all of the regulatory boxes, I've never made the assumption that that quality management system works for right. a whole bunch of different reasons. And right. one of the things that I see missing in a lot of quality management systems, John, is specific criteria for when, for example, a complaint, which is the number two reason here, yeah. should be transitioned or elevated to a kappa, right? So I got to believe that some of this is embedded when they say that they didn't even have the procedures to implement them. 
would have to believe that as well. And I've observed similar sorts of issues with a lot of companies. Like they may have a cap up procedure that describes what to do when somebody decides that an issue is CAPA worthy. But I think it's the inputs into that CAPA process that are questionable or need some work. You know, to your point, if you have a complaint, what do you do? Is there ever a time or situation or circumstance where you need to escalate that in the CAPA? And if so, what are those conditions and criteria to do so? And not just complaint, but just other you know, practices as well, you know, maybe manufacturing or uh, purchasing or whatever the case may be. Clear definition, I think, is missing in a lot of company procedures with respect to determining if and when a cap is necessary. So then I think in those circumstances, I mean, it's maybe it's a little unfair to scrutinize the CAPA process too much. At the same time, I mean, this shows that to your point, just because you put it down in a procedure doesn't necessarily mean it works. You have to kind of live those procedures. And this is sort of, I think, the essence of implementing quality systems and implementing the subsequent processes and procedures that comprise that quality system because this is how you do business. And if you don't follow through with that, you're just checking that box, then well, no wonder there are so many issues being cited for things like not having a procedure because didn't do it, you know? And I got to point out the irony or maybe even the hypocrisy of what you yourself just said, putting down the procedure assumes that you have a procedure. (laughs) The majority of these companies cited here are companies that didn't have a procedure. Uh, So if they don't have a procedure, how could they put it down? Yeah, I don't. (laughs) I mean, I want this to sound tongue in cheek. and I don't want this to sound like a prescription to folks that are in that situation. But Mike, it is so easy to find procedures these days for a couple hundred bucks, you know? We're not even talking about (laughs) evaluating or debating whether or not it's the appropriate procedure, whether or not it's an effective procedure, because I'll be the first to admit that just because you have a procedure doesn't mean that it's effective that it works. Just like I said a moment ago with the quality management system, just because you have one doesn't mean that it works. But here we're talking about companies that don't even have a procedure. Yeah, that's just, like I said a moment ago, it's 2021. There's no excuse. I mean, if you're a medical device company today and you don't know the need to to define your processes and procedures on things like CAPA complaints and all the other elements that are defined with pretty well defined within 21 CFR Part 820. I know there's a few other subparts too, but these have been around for, well, 20, five years, right? So give or take, this is not new stuff. It's not Definitely new stuff. not new. And as I think you and I have talked about before, John, and these are all things, by the way, that I advise my customers of, even though I don't market myself as a mock auditor or, you know, somebody that writes quality management systems. And with all due respect, John, there's not enough money on earth that a company could give me <laughs> to write a QMS for them. That's when I refer them to people like you. But what well, I do thank you. do- But what I do do is I will evaluate companies' QMSs to make suggestions, not just how to make sure that it's fine in a regulatory sense, but compliant, you know, in the real world sense. But one of the things that bothers me about this whole CAPA system is we call it a CAPA, a corrective Mm -hmm. action, preventative action, which means we're putting the emphasis on correcting problems as opposed to preventing problems. With all due respect, I think that's back ass words. I think we should be calling these a PACA a preventative action, corrective action. The Mm -hmm. emphasis should be on preventing a problem from happening, not correcting a problem once it did happen. Obviously, both things are important, but I think the emphasis should be on preventing rather than correcting. For sure. Do you agree, John? Uh, For sure. I mean, and still, this baffles me a little bit too, because you and I have talked about that very thing many times before, and and I know that's been the subject of plenty of content and webinars, uh, Greenlight and Vascular Sciences, and many, many others who are in this space for a long, long time. 
and it sort of begs the question, I mean, if you look at this, clearly we as an industry, we're still struggling to understand PACA or CAPA or however way you want to say, but we're struggling to understand that. We're struggling to understand complaints and how to properly handle those for sure. And I'm not naive. I know these things are somewhat complicated and, you know, having worked with a lot of different companies in my career, I know there's varying interpretations of these things, right? You know, like some people like, oh, you know, they, they reserve like a CAPA for like a super special circumstance because in my opinion, the wrong mindset when they think about these things, quality management system elements are looking at that as bad news thing. Oh, we got a CAPA. That's a bad news thing. Or, oh, we got a complaint. That's a bad news thing. And no, don't mishear me. It's neither good nor bad necessarily. It's input, it's data, it's information about something that's working or not working as well as it should with respect to your process, your product, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole point is to learn from it, to gather this information, to properly investigate it, determine ideally a root cause or root causes, and then take the necessary actions to prevent that from being an issue again. Now, I know it's way easier for me just to say that. It's a little bit more challenging in practice, but this is not, we're not reinventing the wheel. Indeed, John, we're not reinventing the wheel. History does tend to repeat itself. I mean, whatever metaphor, whatever cliche you want to use, they have a lot of... Why don't we move on to the second most common source of 43 observations, according to the article in the FDA statistics here, and that is complaints. Mm-hmm. Complaints. And here's an interesting, I thought was an interesting little factoid. Of the almost 200 times that complaints were cited, manufacturers did not document. Once again, we're back to documenting <laughs> their procedures for maintaining their files uh, and so on. I mean, what happened to the old GMP adage, John, from years, if not decades ago, if it wasn't documented, it never happened. Well, but that might be the problem, Mike. Maybe a little bit of a contrarian here, but maybe folks are thinking, oh, if we didn't document this thing, then it didn't really happen. And I hate to think that. I mean, I know a lot of medical device professionals, and, and I think, you know, generally speaking, folks in this industry want to understand how to make the products as safe and effective as possible. But it is, you know, I feel like a broken record from the Kappa portion of our conversation. Well, this is basic blocking and tackling. This is just basic stuff here. Well, just to illustrate to our audience that it's not just a matter of semantics. It's not just a matter of filling out forms, as, as you and I have talked about many times before, dotting I's and crossing T's. Let's throw a little more gasoline on this proverbial fire job. <laughs> okay. 139 times there were complaints of medical device failures that were not even investigated. Now, to be fair, I don't know what the nature of these failures were. I would assume that if the failure was never investigated, that nobody else does either. That's the purpose <laughs> of having an investigation, right? That's one problem. Another problem that they cite in the article here did not contain required information eight times. Complaints weren't investigated or lack rationale for not conducting an investigation. If a company decides that for whatever reason a is not worth investigating, and I'll be the first to admit, John, the frustrations that I have with FDA, this idea that all complaints have to be investigated equally. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. Agreed. You know, it's like in medicine, we use the triage system. So if somebody goes to the emergency room and they're having a heart attack, they're going to get treated, we hope, much quicker than somebody that gets a splinter in their finger. So a device that has a little cosmetic defect, you know, maybe a, a scratch in the in the or or a, you know an abnormal coloration, you know, the housing or, of the device. With all due respect, as a professional biomedical engineer, I could care less. That's mm-hmm. not the kind of complaint that I worry about. Right. right. But if you have something that can definitely impact 
the safety, the efficacy, performance of the product. That is something that not just biomedical engineers and regulatory professionals should care about, something that everybody should care about. And Absolutely. yet, according to these FDA statistics, John, they were not documented. In some cases, they were not even investigated. Yeah. How do we explain that? I don't have an explanation for it because... I mean, to your point, I mean, not every complaint requires some level of investigation. To your point, they don't all require the same depth and detail and level of investigation, but they all require something. And and I believe, or my interpretation of the regulations is if we have a, I'll say a repeat infraction, something that has we've observed before, learned about previously, that we did already investigate, there's an opportunity to tie that previous investigation to this new event. But, but you shouldn't do so just carte blanche. Say like, oh, yeah, that thing happened before. This is exactly like that thing before. I mean, you, you want to have some confidence, I think, to do that. But that is a level of investigation. To echo what you're saying, I mean, our job as medical device professionals is to make sure the products that we design, develop, manufacture, sell, and so on and so forth, they're as safe and effective as they possibly can be. And so I have a responsibility, certainly to the patients, to do an investigation when I learn about something, you know, and it, uh, hey, I've been there. I understand. It's easy sometimes to throw your hands up, say, we, we tried. Uh, we called a few people. We didn't learn anything. I don't think that's a good excuse, you know. Well, the thing that bothers me most thus far with our conversation, John, is we're not quibbling over the details of whether no. they did a thorough enough vet investigation. Right. We're not quibbling over the details of the amount of information. We're not quibbling about the details of a procedure that a company is using and is that the adequate procedure or can it be done better? When it comes to CAPAs or now complaints, we're talking about whether or not the company even did some of these things, mm -hmm. whether the company had these procedures in place, whether or not they investigated a problem. Yeah. And can you imagine, never mind about, you know, I applaud your altruistic you know, motivations <laughs> here of wanting to do things for the greater good, you know, for the protection of the patients, never mind, you know, from altruism, never mind regulatory. Can you imagine, John, what in a courtroom? an expert witness like me, you know, if I can say that not only did the company, you know, have reports of a problem happening, but they didn't even investigate the problem happening. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take an MD or PhD or JD after, or RAC, it doesn't take any letters after anybody's name to appreciate. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Mm -hmm. So altruism aside, FDA consequences aside, if our colleagues in our industry that are listening to us, if they're not paying attention from a pure product liability perspective, I don't know what greater motivation we can offer than that. Yeah. I want to try to you know, see if we can highlight a few tips and pointers for folks before we wrap things up here in a few moments. But before we do that, I want to take a short break. I want to remind everyone that I'm speaking with Mike Drews. Mike is president of Vascular Sciences, probably a voice you've heard before on the Global Medical Device Podcast. You know, if you have, then you probably know how I feel about the guy. He is best in the industry when it comes to regulatory strategy and, you know, building out roadmaps and pathways and just things that are, they might be you know, a little di bit different than what you're used to. And that's okay. Mike's got a very <laughs> pragmatic way of doing things. And, and he does think about the problem probably differently than most regulatory professionals in the industry. So I would encourage you to check out Mike Drews. You can find him a number of places. LinkedIn, he writes for content for a lot of different publications. He does webinars for Greenlight quite often and obviously podcasts. So check that out. And 
While I'm taking this short break, I want to remind you all about Greenlight Guru. We do have a medical device success platform that helps you manage CAPAs and complaints. And the next thing we're going to talk about design controls among a lot of different areas of a quality management system so that it's a little bit simpler. We have templates and procedures. We have gurus on our team that have been there, done that, that can walk you through and help you get everything where it needs to be from a process perspective. So if you're interested in learning more about how Greenlight Guru might be able to help, go check it out in www.greenlight.guru. All right. So Mike, I think let's hit that top, that third item on the top three list. And then maybe let's see if we can give some tips and pointers on things that, that folks can take home and maybe change about their ways so that here in a year from now, we're not talking about the same thing. Absolutely, John. Happy to continue the discussion. All right. So the third item was design controls. And you know, this one's always interesting to me. Most folks know me know that I'm a design control nerd and it's always design validation. I mean, so the design control ones is a little bit complicated, I suppose. And that design control uh, 820.30 has multiple subparts, but it always seems like design validation is at the top of 43 observations with respect to the topic of design controls. I don't understand why. Well, I would also remind you as well as our audience, John, that what originally brought the two of us together many years ago <laughs> was the topic yes. of design controls. <laughs> yes, it was. And validation and was part of it. For those that are not familiar with that story, then maybe we can, as part of this particular yeah. podcast, maybe we can point to some, sure. some references back to those days. But yeah, I mean, so design Design controls continues to be sort of the thorn in the rose bush for a lot of companies. Let's get into the weeds a, a tiny bit more on this. You mentioned validation. Validation, apparently the part of the design controls that leads to the most number of 43s and specifically observations range from not having procedures, once again, back to the same Basics. root cause, not having procedures to not performing or documenting a risk analysis not having software validations or not using production equivalent device in the validation studies. Yeah. I mean, to me, as I've said many times before in our conversations, John, to me, design controls is nothing more than a synonym. It's substantially equivalent, if you will, to prudent engineering. Yeah. I mean, take just for example, the yeah. last example. I mean, shouldn't it be common sense that if part of your final verification and validation of your device, whether it's packaging, sterility, stability, shelf life, whatever it is, <laughs> that you would use production equivalent devices as part of your final validation study? Isn't that common uh, sense? I, Mike, it seems to be because, I mean, let's remind folks, hopefully this is repeat information for everybody listening, but design validation is demonstrating that you've designed the correct product, that it actually works in point of use. This is the whole reason you enter into design and development to begin with is there's a need, clinical need of some sort. You go through the whole design development process and design validation is one of those final steps in that process to demonstrate that the damn thing works the way it's supposed to with the actual user and the actual clinician. Well, it seems like that is common sense. Like if we're trying to prove that the product works, shouldn't I prove that the product that I've built is what I'm going to continue to manufacture? And one way to do that is, well, why don't I manufacture those products in that environment and use those units to do this as well. It, it just seems basic to me. And it's frustrating that we're struggling with the basics as an industry. Well, it does seem basic to me as well, John, is not just as a regulatory professional, but as a professional biomedical engineer. But let's take this a step further because the devil is in the deep. And as I'm fond of saying, average regulatory professionals know the rules, but the best ones know the exceptions. Mm -hmm. You and I both know very well that what we're talking about here, specifically using production equivalent devices in our final VN 
and V testing. That's what the regulatory textbook says. That's what the theory says, but that's not always the reality. Right. There are many cases, and I advise this to my customers all the time, where you can justify using non-final product as part of your sure. final VNV testing, as long as you can justify. And in a nutshell, sure. basically the regulatory logic or the engineering logic is, I have to show that if I were to conduct the same test on my final production device, I would get the same result as whatever version that I'm testing it on. And mm -hmm. this is one of the you know big difference between startup or small companies operate versus you know large companies, especially when it comes to things like sterility of validations or shelf life, which can take a you know a very, very long time. So I think it's important, John. On one hand, you know, we are being a bit critical of our industry here and our many, you know, colleagues and friends working in this industry. But on the other hand, I don't think we should overgeneralize. You yeah. know, there are exceptions to all of these rules. And it's very different going by the regulatory textbook, the theory, versus the everyday reality. Does that mm -hmm. make sense, John? Maybe you have a, a different way that you look at it. Yes, it does make sense. And, you know, I, I think that is a key point because a lot of times what happens when you're in still in development, I mean, you may be making highly dependent on your type of product. I get that. But the volume generally of what you want to produce during development is substantially less than the volume, usually orders a magnitude less of what you're going to do in full scale production. And so I get, you know, you may not want to have full scale production to address your design verification and design validation activity. I understand that. You need to be able to show that provenance, so to speak, I guess. And every time you iterate or make a change or refine your process or maybe increase the volume, the manufacturing volume, and so on and so forth, there's numerous things along the way that you have a responsibility to demonstrate that change, whatever it might be, did not impact your previous results, that it's still a good product and corroborates and supports what you've done from a VMV perspective. So yeah, I'm right there with you. So just to recap, so they list 10 of the most cited issues in medical device inspections. We've focused on the top three, APA's complaints and design controls. Collectively, those represent 35% or a little bit more than a third of mm -hmm. all of the 43s. One other one that I just wanted to point out just very, very quickly, and then we can wrap this up, John, is purchasing controls. Yeah. And they point out here that another of the common cited issues is purchasing controls. The reason why I bring this up is because the other day I had one of my customers, a small startup company, they have limited resources. They're in the process of building their quality management. They don't have the time or the resources to build an entire QMS. And they asked me, you know, is it appropriate for them to not worry about purchasing controls right now and, you know, cross that bridge later on? And I said, well, and you might appreciate this example, John. Well, you can do that, but here's the dilemma. Purchasing controls, which, you know, a lot of people think is just, you know, a bunch of, you know what, yeah. that was the root cause to the single largest medical device class action lawsuit in the history of our industry. And that is the whole gynecological mesh fiasco, yeah. right? Purchasing control. Yeah. So my point is, it's easy to kind of dismiss something like, oh, who cares? You know, purchasing control is no big deal. That, you know, can cause significant problems by itself. Would you agree, John? A hundred percent. And I think the, well, whenever I talk to companies and if they're smaller, earlier stage companies, uh, oftentimes I'm asked, what is the strategy for implementing my quality management system? Do I need it all right away? Or can I do it, in, you know, in, in phases? And my response 
generally is you can do this in phases. It's like, great. What are the first things that I should focus on? What's in that first phase? Well, it is design control. It is risk management. It is document management and records management. And it's supplier management because chances are, especially if you're a small startup, you're probably going to be relying on third-party resources, whether they be design firms or contract manufacturers or testing houses or whatever the case may be. So it's pragmatic to get that house in order from the jump because you're going to be reliant on suppliers. And I think that's been the evolution of our industry for decades now is, you know, the brick and mortar businesses, they still exist, but more and more, they're outsourcing different aspects of their business to third-party resources. So absolutely, totally agree. And I would just remind you, John, because you and I have done a lot of podcasts over many different topics over the years, but one of them in particular, I remember, was I think the one that you may have just been referring to. Yeah. And that is the one that you and I did last year on what I would call triaging your quality yeah. management system. And it's interesting that, you know, as I listened to you identify what you thought were the top three or four areas of the quality management that you should start with. I think I gave different ones. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I think if you combine yours so, and mine together, it comprises the top 10 issues. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So listen, I, you know, to wrap this up, John, I don't want this to be just a bitching and moaning and groaning session about, yeah. you know, how bad people are doing. If we were to, to end this on a final positive note, what would be the one piece of advice that you would like people to walk away from discussion today? Tell us what you think yours is, and then I have one to share. Yeah, sure. In the article, it goes on to do some summaries of the five takeaways. And so I'm going to steal the obvious one. I think this says, of 1,191 times the top 10 clauses were cited, the lack of procedures accounted for 67% of them, or 803 of the 1,191 items. So seems to me that the most obvious thing is make sure you have a procedure and not just have a procedure to check a box. Make sure you follow that procedure. Make sure people understand how to apply that procedure. Make sure they know where it is. Make sure the folks that are on the job know which things are important to them from a process and a procedural standpoint. Maybe that seems too obvious, but that would be the first piece of advice because it's clearly a problem. Well, it might sound obvious, John, but it is clearly a problem because the statistics that you just shared, you know, bear that out. The most common reason is lack of features or documented yeah. procedures and so on. So I think that's very sage advice, John. May I share my sure, absolutely. last piece of advice? And I'm going to put my sort of unique, you know, Mike Cruz kind of a spin on yeah. this. Right. You know, as a regulatory consultant, we don't need more regulation. We've already got, <laughs> you know, tons and tons of that. What we need is people understanding the intent of the regulation. And here is a perfect example. So why don't companies, let's say a company this past year did not get a 43 from the FDA, but what they should do is they should take a look at this article yeah. that you and I have been talking about. Agreed. And they should start a CAPA based on that. And they mm -hmm. should say, okay, here are a or, list. Sorry, top uh, you mean a PACA because they're being preventive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for correcting me, John. Uh. A PACA, a preventive action, corrective action. Take a look at these list of 10 most cited issues. And even though if you haven't gotten dinged by FDA yet, take a look at these and see, could these happen to us? And try to address these, try to make sure that you have like these procedures and so on in place. Take the number one, you know, in this list, you know, Kappa citations in a reactionary fact fashion. Once you know that you have a problem, corrective action. Do it as you just pointed out, John, not a Kappa, but a PACA. You know, mm -hmm. try to use this information and prevent problems from occurring. 
just like, you know, when the Bleeding Edge documentary came out, mm -hmm. you and I talked about that from Netflix. I said that should be mandatory viewing for everybody in our industry. Use that as a point of discussion within your organization. Even though you might not be manufacturing some of the devices that were talked about in that particular documentary, take a look at that documentary and ask yourself the question, could these problems happen to us? Yeah, that, that's good. That, I think, is part of what is truly being a responsible for medical device professional. Uh, yeah, I love it. Think that's uh, realistic, John, or did I just fall off the turnip truck? Yesterday? I think you fell off the turnip truck. I hope it's not too Pollyanna-ish either for our industry, because I think it's good. You know, this is the whole idea. I mean, clearly, FDA is probably going to be looking at your CAPA practices, your complaint practices, your design control practices, your purchasing and supplier control practices, and so on and so forth. In fact, it's pretty clear what they're going to be looking for, because QSR defines the requirements. They have, I believe, QCIT is still the method by which FDA does inspections, they tell you what they're looking for. So it is no excuse to not have this in place. So I think, yes, go scrutinize what you do and don't do as from a business practice standpoint, make sure that you do have these things addressed, because these will certainly be areas that FDA and other regulatory bodies are going to look for and expect that you have in place and that you're managing those effectively. So yeah, I think it's great advice simple too. You know, John, you've obviously played this game for a very long time. Have you ever seen a company start a Kappa or a PACA based not on problems that they've experienced, but problems that other companies in the industry have experienced and to try to prevent them? I have not, but I think now uh, we have just bar for yeah. industry. Um, it may, I was trying to think that it seemed like there might've been one time that comes to mind because it was a- uh, Perhaps, but, sir, but certainly it's- a, But generally that's, yeah, that, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here we have an article. It's in an industry publication. People may be scratching their head and like, should I do a packup because of this article? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes, you should. Absolutely, yes. yes you should. Absolutely. And if your conclusion was everything terrific and these problems that happen to us, then absolutely, let's have a parade and wave the flag. You know? Yeah. But if not, it's an opportunity to fix some problems before they occur. And it's and always better to fix them yourself. Than an ounce to... of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Again, whatever cliche. And yeah. the last thing that I'll mention, and then we can wrap this up, John, is, you know, is a regulatory professional, I'm constantly looking for precedent, mm -hmm. not necessarily in a regulatory, I was going to say predicates, you know, not necessarily right. in a regulatory or a 510k sense. But for example, having a 510k device on the market, and if there's problems with a predicate device, you should be investigating those. Mm -hmm. Here we have, you know, examples of problems that a lot of companies have faced in our industry. Taking a look at these problems and asking ourselves the question, could these same problems or similar problems happen to us? To me, John, that is the essence. That's the philosophy of why we have a quality match. Yeah. Never mind, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, checking the boxes. It's the whole intent of that regulation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I can't say that any better than what you just did, Mike. So we're going to let that be the last thought on today's podcast. And folks, as I mentioned, check out Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Great guy to have in your corner if you're doing anything, well, not anything, well, maybe anything regulatory related, but I was going to say, if you want some novel, unique strategy and approach, well, you know, Mike is your guy. So don't just follow blindly and do what everybody else has done. Bring people like Mike Drews and Vascular Sciences and give us a call at Greenlight Guru because, you know, we're trying to raise the bar, so to speak. We're trying to do something unique, novel, different, innovative, creative, all those sorts of things. And yes, those are okay to say and be a medical device company, but you just need the right pathway and strategy to understand how to do that. So as always, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Music.